Welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You, a video and podcast show that brings you leadership lessons, knowledge, experience, and wisdom from hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Today, I'm privileged to welcome a very, very successful banker turned social entrepreneur, Vanessa D'Souza. Vanessa, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, Vanessa is the CEO of Sneha, which is the Society for Nutrition, Education, and Health Action. She was a director with Citigroup Private Bank, and she's the recipient of the Mother Teresa Social Leadership Scholarship. So Vanessa, what would you say are three key milestones in your life? You know, that was a tough question, Ashutosh. I had to think hard when you said people, when you uh, asked me. But um, I think the, the first, I think, is a big milestone was when I joined Citibank. Mm -hmm. um, they called Citibank the best university in the world. And I think right. for, the, for good reasons, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and I learned, you know, forget about banking. But I think what I learned was to take risks. I learned mm -hmm. how to deal with people. I learned to work with diversity, people from across the globe. Mm -hmm. um, and I think those were great lessons. The second big turning point for me, I think, is when I joined Sneha as a volunteer. Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, I had absolutely no intentions of joining the social sector. You know, I, I had no idea. Mm -hmm. And it's a call from our founder, actually, who, um, you know, called me and said, you know, will, would you be interested in just helping us to fundraise? Mm -hmm. and, um, and I remember the first time I walked into that slum. So I worked at the Bandra Kudla complex, mm -hmm. which, as you know, is, you know, the best yep. financial center of the country. Yeah. And I walked into Dharavi and mm. I had never walked so deep into a slum, Ashutosh. Mm. You know, we always go past slums. Mm. And they took me to Sneha's child uh, nutrition program. There was a daycare center. Mm -hmm. And when they told me we're going to a daycare center, I expected to see, you know, nice bouncy mm. kids. And, mm. and, and what I saw really shocked mm. me. Wow. There were two-year-old children who couldn't sit, who couldn't hold their heads. And I think that was the first time I realized that mm. we really are, um, you know, uh, 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 an accident of birth, right? Mm. I mean, any of us could have been born there. And I think that was a very big turning point for me. Mm. Um, the third big turning point was when I actually became CEO of Sneha. In mm. many ways, I was like a reluctant bride. And you mm. know, for a year, the founder kept saying, you know, why don't you join? And I kept saying, what will I do over here, right? Mm. Because I'm neither a public health person, nor am I um, a, a social worker. Mm. And I think what, um, you know, but the experience at Sneha was um, so different. And, mm. and I think what I learned was um, how to deal with a completely different objective, different culture, a different environment. There is so much of diversity of stakeholders, right from, you know, your field workers to government employees to high net worth individuals. And abil the ability to straddle all those was the other um, aspect that I thought was uh, mm -hmm. quite a quite a tremendous learning and and pushed me in many ways. Very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. So you know you have successfully transitioned Vanessa from the corporate sector to the social sector. I mean you know uh, what you just told me your second milestone was your epiphany when you saw the small children. Right. But what is your message to people who want to join the social sector? So, you know, Ashutosh, it's very interesting. A lot of people want to join the sector because they, they think they'll get an easy time. Mm. The first myth I want to break mm. is that I don't think I've worked so hard and I don't think I've had as many sleepless nights at mm. Sneha than I probably had in my 21 years at City. Okay, so mm. I think that's the first myth. Mm -hmm. I think the second myth that people have is it's very unprofessional, mm -hmm. you know, because probably people don't have the social graces that corporate people have. But, you know, I think they, they are very clear in their mission. 
mm-hmm. um, they take much longer. It takes longer to to bring about change in the social sector, mm-hmm. but that's because the process of change is very different. It's a very participatory process. People have to buy into something, but once they buy in. Mm-hmm. that's when you'll see them coming in with a lot of passion and probably a lot of ideas and the third myth is i'm coming to the social sector because i'm giving back mm. you know the reality is that you get so much in return mm. the amount of learning that i have had the amount of change in my whole perspective of life and i become such a more complete human being and i think that's the kind of myth that you need to break it's not what you're giving but okay. it's what you're getting in return okay but you know you chose to after a volunteer become full time right uh, with sneha yeah. what would you tell people who want to continue working and yet be able to give back you must volunteer okay you know i think uh, uh, the reason i say volunteer is because you have to find that the the area that disturbs you you got mm. to feel strongly about it mm. for me it was that malnourished child and i yeah. saw injustice and you know why should a 2 year old have to start life like that mm. for somebody else it could be the environment sure. but you don't know what mm. moves you till you actually get exposed mm. and i think that's important because you know in many years in our, i've completed 8 years at sneha and every time i'm frustrated and trust me there have been many times when i get frustrated and then what the hell am i doing in this job right but it is that one visit back to the center that centers me and makes me realize why i am there yes. and that's why it's really important i think for people to to know what disturbs them and why they're over there mm. and that's why i would advocate volunteering okay so let's move on and talk about sneha when i was reading about you and looking at your website you're working in four areas you know maternal right. and newborn health child health and nutrition adolescent health and prevention of violence against women and children can you take me through the work you're doing in each of these areas and if possible with an example yeah so you know ashutosh first of all i want to say that most people um, will say why are you working in so many different areas why don't you just focus on one hmm. but our objective is to break the intergeneration cycle of mm-hmm. poor health and the intergeneration cycle of violence mm-hmm. and that can happen if you work at those critical stages when sneha started working when our founder founded sneha dr fernandez she was only working with pregnant women and on gender based violence okay. pregnant women because she was a neonatologist and mm-hmm. she wanted every child to be born healthy to give right, them right. the best chance in life gender based violence this was in 1999 there was no studies on correlation between violence and health but she saw many cases of gender based violence including a 6 week old baby raped wow. and she said this is something that i really need to work on this was 1999 right nobody worked extensively on mm-hmm. violence at mm-hmm. that time but what sneha tries to do is there is a very close linkage of each of these life cycle points and mm-hmm. what we're trying to do is work at these points right. so we work with adolescents we work on the health physical health so it could be anemia bmi to make sure that they are healthy adolescents mm-hmm. and we also work on gender so gender beliefs norms and practices start taking shape when you are 9 10 11 years old right mm-hmm. and therefore it's important to to make sure that the right no beliefs enter this young child right mm-hmm. the second stage we also work on what we call preconception care so we work through the teenage then we work on newly married couples both men and women mm-hmm. because we want to try and make sure that women are healthy before they get pregnant mm-hmm. so we will work on preconception anemia we'll work on planned parenthood but you know uh, it's also another word for family planning mm-hmm. so that women get pregnant 
post 21 years when mm-hmm. probably it's the most ideal time they're not anemic when they get pregnant mm-hmm. they also have a right to choose when they want to have that Correct. child right so we work on preconception mm-hmm. care then we work through the entire period of pregnancy the 9 months to make sure women access antenatal care mm-hmm. they have the right nutrition mm-hmm. and they deliver in a hospital yeah okay and then then we work on the young child okay mm-hmm. the up, so the period from conception to 2 years is known as the golden period yeah because you can actually if you work on the pregnant woman and the child mm-hmm. and you're able to prevent a child from entering into malnutrition and mm-hmm. you know one severe form is wasting there's another severe form called stunting if the child can stay out of malnutrition up to 2 years of age the chances of the child then slipping in is much less right also stunting affects the cognitive development of the person for the rest of their lives mm. so we want to make sure that children in that period uh, you know are healthy and can have the best chance to to reach full potential right so that's really why we work on all these ages mm. The reason we work on gender-based violence is because at every stage in life, women are subjected to violence. So that's one area where you know we may start with gender norms. We also work on couple counselling so that newly married couples, you know, we don't start ha- having violence in mm-hmm. their relationships. And then, of course, through the entire life cycle. So that's really the life cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, the other aspect that we have more recently started working on is palliative care. Okay. Um, and that's also it's really unrelated to the life cycle but the the reason we work on it is because there is a very big gap in palliative care and our founder had a very close encounter with a, a, a you know cancer survivor mm-hmm. and that's how we started but it's a new initiative and a very small part of our work okay okay so you know as a health ngo working in some of the most worst or one of the worst affected slums in the in the pandemic What do you think were the main reasons we were able to control the spread of the virus? I mean, I've often wondered why is it that Dharavi managed to right. stay so safe? You know, I think if you ask me, what are the two, three big reasons? I think the biggest reason is because there was intersectoral collaboration. Okay. We saw for the first time the government coming in, working in with NGOs, with mm-hmm. politicians, with private sector, with community volunteers. Mm-hmm. and they all came together and worked in a in, in a very planned and systematic manner mm-hmm. the second thing that i work think worked extremely well mm-hmm. is we saw the government spur into action very quickly mm-hmm. overnight we saw covid care centers quarantine centers door to door screening mm-hmm. which is something we have not seen in all our years right okay. so that that quick action was an and very deliberate action mm-hmm. and the third action is the role of the communities mm-hmm. the communities came forward and the community stepped in they took leadership positions to actually come and do messaging to help with screening to help with distribution of rations this kind of effort from the community is something that you know again helped to prevent the pandemic the role of these three stakeholders is very important to call out and then finally the role of the ngos the ngos were like the choir conductor they mm. orchestrated all these stakeholders right. so that we could obje- uh, achieve our objectives amazing you know it, it's quite a quite a case study and i'm sure someone will write about this in yes. future on how in maharashtra this this the world's largest slum managed it at probably right. the best yeah it's amazing so it, it's it's amazing but you know even after the first the the, the first wave and mm-hmm. be- before now we've started the second wave mm-hmm. um you know one of the things we realized was extremely important is to continue the preventive messaging because many of the slums thought you know covid has gone 
and we actually have done a joint communication campaign in dharavi with the uh, the health system mm-hmm. to on a zero mission uh, for uh, covid so you know i think the government has also realized the power of the community and the power of collaborating with stakeholders interesting so tell me you know uh, you just mentioned that the government as a major stakeholder came together along with everyone else in dharavi yeah. are the government schemes to support nutrition and health adequate you know ashutosh government has very good schemes i think on paper like if you read the documents for say poshan abhiyan um you know you read the health policies the mental health policy they're very good uh, documents on paper the challenge is the conversion to implementation right. i think that's where there is a challenge and this is where i think ngos have an important role to play because they create those models for the government right. so when we did our first program on urban malnutrition in dharavi it was the largest urban malnutrition program in dharavi mm-hmm. and these findings were actually taken by uh, poshan abhiyan taken by niti ayog when they were working on the draft urban guidelines mm-hmm. because it is important for ngos to you to create evidence based models because the government needs evidence you cannot put money behind uh, models which are not backed by data right mm-hmm. so i think that's an extremely important role that ngos have mm-hmm. and the second is for the governments themselves they are collecting data mm-hmm. the thing is how do you use that data Correct. you need to keep having feedback loops to keep iterating and improving mm-hmm. and building on what you have mm-hmm. and i think that's the second gap that governments have and the third is training from government frontline workers okay um, and not just technical training but i think leadership skills motivation training that is so important mm-hmm. because eventually it is the government workers that are implementing the schemes and when i say government workers i mean across all levels mm-hmm. you need to provide the the technical training the motivation the appreciation mm-hmm. i think those are very important factors that you know are often missed in the process very very interesting and you know you just spoke of data you know and you must be generating a lot of data from so many different centers how do you use technology and data to uh, you know manage the organization and to benefit women and children yeah so i think one of the um, i'm going to give you an example with our program on child health and nutrition mm-hmm. so we were running this program in dharavi 18000 children the whole of dharavi it was huge and i remember one of our donors said you know why don't we take a, and there was about 4% of this population of children mm-hmm. that was just not coming below the levels of malnutrition was not dropping and this is when we decided to use a cohort we did a cohort study we said we can't follow 18000 children for 6 months but let's follow a thousand children let's understand what is happening to those thousand children right and when we started working with the thousand children we saw that actually in those 4% of children it had nothing to do with the nutrition it had to do with other aspects the mental health of the mother domestic violence that existed in those families and that's when we started working on um, gender based violence as part of a core component of all our programs because we said we have to have our frontline workers able to identify a woman facing violence and then refer her for counseling and whatever follow up treatment mm-hmm. and this is where data helps you know okay. you can actually figure out what are the underlying problems why things are going well and why they are not going well and okay. then address it accordingly interesting very interesting and uh, how do these communities that you work in how do they take charge of their own health 
You know, one of our models at Sasneha is while we create these models, we know we have to sustain our work, right? And there are two ways you sustain the work. One is where you strengthen government systems to provide better quality of work. And the second way you work, build capacity of communities to build, to be able to demand health services, quality health services from the government. So we have many activities. The first thing we do when we enter any community is we have something called micro planning. So micro planning is understanding the community. What are the community needs? What are their resources? Mm -hmm. So you can design your program accordingly, keeping their needs in mind. Mm -hmm. We then use a technique called appreciative inquiry. It's actually a management technique. And this program actually has four stages where you actually help the community to discover what their strengths are. Then you help them to dream. What is it that they want to achieve? Mm. The third, you help them to design. You, you collaboratively design for them. And finally, you have the discovery where you help them then to, uh, sorry, to the, the final is the actual implementation. We help them to implement this design in their communities. Right? Okay. Now, the reason we work in this is because a, a, any kind of change in the community can sustain only when there is community buy-in. Mm. And we've seen in the pandemic and before and even after the pandemic that you have to have the community engaged if you want to make any kind of sustainable change. Absolutely. So working for us, we work with individuals, we work with community groups, and it is this community engagement that actually helps you to sustain change. Oh, so our big role is identifying, training, building capacity, making communities uh, take charge of their own health. Mm. And, you know, uh, in a post-pandemic world, what do you think the government's priority should be? I think the first is urban health. Okay, mm. The government, unfortunately, or fortunately or unfortunately, mm. they started working on the National Rural Health Mission. Mm. It's only in about 2011 that they started working on the National Urban Health Mission. And with increasing urbanization, we've seen that urban health is one priority. The second is prevent primary health care, mm -hmm. preventive, promotive health care. You know, we, we don't want a situation where that we reach a situation like this, right? Looking at other social determinants of health, housing, water, sanitation, you need to look at urban health um, as in a much more consolidated uh, manner. Mm -hmm. And the third is to leverage the power of the communities. Mm -hmm. I think that's something again. And, and the reason is in urban slum communities are very different to rural areas. These are populations that are coming from across the country. Uh, they are migrating. They're migrating between slums. They're migrating between urban and rural areas. Because it's a moving population, you need to have these community action groups and this group that whose capacity is sustained and a group that can, con that can connect migrating urban slum dwellers to public systems. Mm. So when I enter a community new from a village, I need to know where is the Anganwadi, where is the health, primary health center, where is the police station, if I'm experiencing violence, where do I go and access help? Right? And it is these community groups that, can, that, that are, should be trained to connect new entrants in, uh, with the public systems. Mm. So now I'm going to move, uh, Vanessa, to the last section of our conversation with some questions for you or personally. Sure. sure. So for someone who has, uh, you know, seen the private sector and reached right to the very top and now someone who's leading such an amazing social sector organization. Right. right. What are some of the core values you believe in? So I think the first is sincerity in action as well as in, in, in thought and, and 
you know, and word. I think that's important. You know, I, I cannot do anything if I don't believe in it, yeah. right? And I think that's uh, the first thing. Um, the second, I would say, is hard work. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, um, hard work is, there are no free lunches in life, Ashutosh. Mm -hmm. If you want to achieve anything in life, I think you need to work for it. And the third is persistence. You know, mm -hmm. life will keep throwing challenges at us. Um, we can look at a challenge as an opportunity or you can look at it as, as a challenge. And, and I think, you know, the pandemic is a classic example of how, um, you know, we Sneha took this as a challenge and we were out there, you know, not worrying about, you know, will our staff get affected by the pandemic? We were there actually addressing Please. the needs of the communities. I think those three aspects are what very clearly defines what I believe in as well. That's incredible. Uh, when you look at the world today and look at our own country, this is now a country that is being inherited by the millennials and the Gen Zs. Right, right. Uh, you have you know, seen, I'm sure, many people who are volunteering. Right. I want your thoughts on how the millennials and the Gen Zs changing the social sector. You know, before you talk about changing the social sector, Ashutosh, I think the reason Gen Zs are different is because their belief systems are different. They have grown up in a time when you there is words like women empowerment, diversity, etc., are not just exist, but they are powerful. Mm. I remember in 1986 when I joined Citibank, I mean, those words were unheard of, right? You know, if you were pregnant, you quit your job. That was like, it took a lot to hang into your job. So they are growing up at a different time. Their belief systems are different. And because their belief systems are different, their actions are different. Mm. If you feel strongly about women empowerment, you will do something about it. Correct. If you feel strongly about environment, you will do something about it. Mm. But that requires a belief system. It requires exposure. And I think that's what really spurs Gen Z to be very different. I mean, you know, if, if they want to do, find meaning, find purpose, find, you know, contribute to, to the, the universe, it's because they've grown up at a different time. Mm. Interesting. And, you know, as you look at all the work that you're doing uh, with Sneha, and, you know, some amazing work is happening. When you look at yourself and you look at your own life, what does success mean to Vanessa? You know, Ashutosh, I think um, for me, success really means about living a balanced life. Mm. You know, there is there is this um, Swedish term called lagom. Mm. Lagom really means not too much, not too little, optimum. Mm. Right? Mm. And I feel that if you want to be a fulfilled human being, you have to, and you know, while they say you can't have it all, I believe you can, as long as you have it in moderation. Mm -hmm. So you can have a career, you can have a family, you can have hobbies, you can have, um, you know, you can volunteer your time, you can do it all. And, and I think that's an important because at the end of the day, you do want to have um, a life that is rich in multiple experiences. Um, and for me, that's really what success is about. It's not one particular area, it's about balancing across everything you want to do. What a wonderful answer. The next question, I have time for two more questions for you. Sure. My next question is a follow-up from success. And that is, who or what inspires you to keep doing such good work? You know, I think it's the people I work with. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have any one role model um, or inspiration. Mm -hmm. For me, it is um, the, the people on the feed. And honestly, you know, and that's what I mean by Sneha gives back. Or when you work with NGOs, they give back. Um, you know, as, as, a, as a banker, I, I remember one of the things you worked with was your head, right? You worked with your head. 
for me the biggest inspiration is this the way people in ngos work with their head and with their hearts mm. right that balance of head and heart it's a hard balance you know it's like a pendulum that keeps swinging but you need to find that balance and i think that inspiration i get from the people in the field mm. sometimes you'll see the greatest wisdom is from the most uneducated people right. the greatest generosity is from the poorest of people mm. and i think this kind of inspiration that i see from from these people that that we work with and like i said you know when i'm frustrated the first thing i want to do is get into the field mm. because that's where the inspiration comes from you know i want to share this example we have this one of the largest tech companies that brought in um as part of their annual global offsite they brought in a couple of um, very senior executives uh, for a site visit mm -hmm. and their idea was you know to understand how ngos work in low resource settings mm -hmm. so being one of these really large global companies we had to bring in you know there were there were recce visits and there was lots of prep happening and they finally did this very orchestrated visit with security and so on and so forth mm -hmm. and then they spent an, about 15 20 minutes talking to our field workers and um they asked them lots of questions about you know how we work and what we do in the field and why we do it etc and finally the last question to our team was um you know so do you have any questions mm. and one of our field workers stood up and said yes you know you've spent the last 2 hours in the field and we've spent this time with you mm. now what are you going to go back and do uh, when you return to your mm. countries and you know ashu thirst there was pin drop silence Amazing. because i don't think anything could have prepared them for that question Thanks. and that's what i mean by inspiration you know mm. you are constantly inspired by people that you work with every day and for me that's really the energy that that keeps me going how nice i'm just going to say thank you very much thank it's been you. such an amazing conversation for me to learn about sneha and for you to take me through the incredible dharavi example i think that's right. there that's an amazing case study which will be studied for years in front thank you thank again you. Hmm? thank you ashutosh thank you thank you thank you for listening to the brand called you video cast and podcast a platform that brings you knowledge experience and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world do visit our website www.tbcy.in to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals you can also follow us on youtube facebook instagram and twitter just search for the brand called you